Welcome to the City of Refuge podcast, where our mission is to equip a diverse community of Christ followers to make him known. It's good to see all of you. Uh, my name is Keith, and this is my wife, Julie, and those of you who've been here for a while remember us. We've, we were part of this family from uh, 2008 to 2018, and it is a delight to be back uh, it's good to see all of you. Some of the people in this world who are dearest to us are in this room right now, and it is a joy to be here with you. Let me pray as we prepare to open God's Word. Father, I thank you for this wonderful and dear family and for all that you have done through this church in my life and the lives of so many people and all that you stand ready to do uh, as a new season begins very soon. Uh, Father, I thank you for your faithfulness to this church and their faithfulness to you and I pray, Lord, that as we open your word today, that it would accomplish that whereunto you sent it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. It's been called the greatest story ever told, but for the people who lived it, it had to have felt like the craziest. Um, the people that were there listening to Peter speak that day at Pentecost uh, Many of them had experienced that story as it unfolded in real time. It had been for them just about three short years since this wandering teacher, Jesus of Nazareth, exploded onto the scene. His teaching wasn't just fearless. It was shattering. And more than that, he declared the coming of the kingdom of God and validated it with miracles, miracles that many of these people had seen healing the sick, multiplying food, raising the dead. And the people loved him. They followed him in mass. But not the religious leaders. They denounced him bitterly. They called him a fraud and a blasphemer. They say his power, by which he did these miracles, was from Satan. But these denunciations made no difference to the people. They loved him. After about three years of this, these, these religious leaders got the upper hand. They arranged for his arrest and conspiring with the Romans, they had him crucified. He was dead. But the story didn't end there. Because on the third day, this itinerant preacher, this worker of wonders, crucified by the Romans, rose from the dead. Incredible. But many of the people to whom Peter was speaking that day had themselves seen it. And all the others had heard about it, I'm sure. So he rose from the dead. Well, where is he then? Forty days later, these same followers, or so they say, they, they saw him rise into heaven and now one of those followers is standing before us telling us about him. And he's just quoted a lengthy section from the prophet Joel. And at the end of that, he says this, quoting Joel, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. I guess that's what he wants us to do right now. Call on the name of the Lord so that we will be saved. Well, why don't we? Well, the reason is that there were a lot of different takes 
on these events represented in that audience. People looked at these events in countless different ways, and that wasn't new. I mean, early in Jesus' ministry, relatively early, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? In other words, what's their narrative? What are people saying? Lots of things. Some say that you're uh, Elijah, come back from the dead. Jeremiah, one of the prophets. Even John the Baptist, who'd been killed just a short time before that question was asked. Um, The religious leaders, they had a different view. They believed that he was a false prophet and a blasphemer who deserved to die, and they imposed him at every step. The Romans, well, the Romans were pragmatic. They saw it very differently. They saw a popular preacher who was more popular than the religious leaders, and the religious leaders were jealous, and that's why they conspired with the Romans to kill him. That's simple. Not a hard story at all for the Romans. But even for the disciples on the road to Emmaus, after Jesus had died and risen, they'd heard reports of him having risen. They knew about the crucifixion. Even they were confused. Uh, they, they described him to this stranger who was walking next to them as a prophet, mighty in word and deed. And they said, we had hoped that he was going to be the one that redeemed Israel. A lot of different views, a lot of different narratives. And now we've got this Peter giving us yet another account of what all this meant. That's the problem that Peter was dealing with at that moment in the sermon. A lot of amazing events, but how are we to understand them? Wild, unprecedented events. Powerful, yes, but even religious leaders were telling him, be careful what you make of that. There's more than one source of spiritual power in this world. So what are we to think? Whose narrative is right? You know, the right to your own narrative is, is practically an article of faith in modern ethics. We are told and we tell each other that we have absolute authority to frame our own story to ascribe to it our own sense of meaning. And this extends to the spiritual realm. In fact, it's probably most keenly guarded in the spiritual realm. That when it comes to spiritual things, it's it's up to you. What does it mean to you? What's your take? Where do you find meaning in this? So the problem wasn't unique to Peter's day. It's a problem in our own day as well. Um, So the question that Peter is grappling with, and the question I want us to grapple with today, is this. Who owns the Jesus narrative? Who owns the Jesus narrative? You know, it's interesting. When Jesus asked his disciples, who do the people say that I am? They give various answers. And then Jesus said this. He said, who do you say that I am? And you remember Peter's answer. He said, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. And what did Jesus say to him? Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. But then he goes on to say, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but instead it was my father in heaven. It was God who revealed to Peter the meaning of the Jesus narrative. And Peter wants to do the same thing for us. He wants to let us know what God thinks. 
about this story, these events that they'd all lived through. Now, some of them from out of town, they're just perhaps hearing about these events for the first time, but many of them had lived through them. Peter is going to help all these people understand these events the only way they can be properly understood, through the eyes of God. And so let's open our Bibles to Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Acts chapter 2, verse 22. I'm going to read the first few verses to you. Picks up in the sermon, right, where Brandon left off last week. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Let's pause right there. Passage goes on through verse 32, and we will as well, but just pausing for a moment. As I prepared for this, I noticed something I don't think I'd ever noticed before. In the 11 verses we're going to look at today, God the Father is referenced 14 times. 14 times. I mean, just the verses we just read. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, the man attested to you by God. A little bit later, that God did through him. Then verse 23, the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Verse 24, God raised him up. Into verse 25, or in the middle there, the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand. Verse 27, you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. Verse 28, you have made known, you will make me full, your presence. Verse 30, being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne. Verse 32, this Jesus God raised up 14 times in 11 verses. When I saw that, I realized, you know, I think maybe Peter wants me to know what God thinks about these events. Because I asked the question a moment ago, who owns the narrative? Who owns the Jesus narrative? And the answer is, God does. God owns the Jesus narrative. I don't. Nobody else does either. He does. And what Peter does in these verses is tell us what God thinks about this. And more than that, not just God's take, what God's up to, what God is doing. So the first thing we see in verse 27, I'm sorry, verse 22, is that God demonstrated that Jesus is the Messiah through miracles. He demonstrated it, proved it, attested to you by God. I just love that scene where Jesus is teaching and people bring a sick man lame to, to him to heal and lower, cut a hole in the roof and lower him down in front of Jesus. What does Jesus do? You remember the story. Your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Why we brought him? I don't know. I don't. Of course, Jesus knows what the religious leaders who are listening in are thinking. Who? Nobody has authority to, but God to forgive sins. Now, they were just thinking it, but Jesus knew it. And he calls them out on it. And he says, what's easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or get up and walk? It's easier to say your sins are forgiven because nobody can check up on it. Who knows? Get up and walk? Okay, it's showtime. 
that he says, but so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, get up and walk. And he did. God the Father backed his play. That kind of thing happened over and over. And Peter's saying that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. You know, we can act all skeptical about these things, but Peter knew that the people that were there, many of them had actually seen them and they couldn't be skeptical at all. He says, you know this. You know, it's amazing that moment when Nicodemus, one of the Pharisees, comes to Jesus at night and he says, listen, listen. We all know that you're a prophet come from God because nobody can do the things that you do if God's not with him. Yeah, we get that. I mean, we deny it in public, but we know it. How could they not know it? Blooming obvious. So what is the Jesus narrative? Number one, God demonstrated that Jesus is the Messiah through miracles. No question about it. Secondly, God delivered up Jesus to be crucified by sinners. It was his doing it's not something he thought, oh my goodness, now what am I going to do? God's got to improvise. Didn't see that coming. And it's not even that he saw it coming and somehow worked it in. No, no, notice verse 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Not just the foreknowledge, but the definite plan. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, men without the law, the Romans. And by the way, the fact that Jews and Gentiles, Romans, were involved doesn't undermine God's authorship or his intention, his ownership of these events one bit. This is what he was up to from the beginning. And then third, God raised Jesus from the dead. As prophesied, verse 24, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Okay, wait a minute. It, it's not possible for him to be held by it? Uh, that kind of happens all the time. People die and they stay dead. In what sense is it not possible for him to be held by it? Now, the sense in which that's true is fascinating and important. Because notice what he says. For David says concerning him, and he quotes Psalm 16, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. Verse 27, here's the key verse. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You won't do it. You made known to be the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Now, you will not abandon, you will not abandon my soul to Hades which is the Greek word hadain. It's not the way nice girls say hell. It's, it's the grave, the place of the dead. You will not abandon my soul to the place of the dead or allow your holy one to see corruption. You won't do that. Now, Peter's got an interesting question. Brothers, verse 29. I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. It's right over here. It's been a thousand years, almost exactly, as it turns out, since David died. Been in the grave a thousand years now. You can check if you were to open it up. I think you know what you'd find. So what does verse 27 mean? You will not abandon my soul to Hades or allow your holy one to see corruption. What did that mean? Well, Peter explains, verse 30, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him 
at Psalm 132, verse 11, and many other places, sworn an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, David, a prophet, foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, the Messiah, that he was not going to be abandoned to Hades, the grave, that he, nor did his flesh, see corruption. So what Peter's pointing out is that what happened here is a prediction and prophecy from Psalm 16. Now, it's interesting, if you read Psalm 16, just Psalm 16, it might not occur to you that this is what David is talking about. But it really doesn't matter what David is talking about, though he may have had this in mind. What matters is what the Spirit of God was talking about when he inspired David to write these things. This same Peter in 1 Peter 1, 10 and 11 writes this, concerning the salvation, 1 Peter 1, 10 and 11, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he, the Spirit of Christ, predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. When the prophets wrote, it was the Spirit of Christ in them that was actually doing the predicting. It didn't matter whether or not the individual writer, like David, understood some far-reaching dual significance of their prophecy. And in fact, in 2 Peter 1, there, you can just write this down, the last two verses of 2 Peter 1, Peter, the same man, says it, it, prophecy in Scripture, it's not a matter of one's private interpretation, it's a matter of what the Spirit of God is saying when he speaks through his prophets. So here's why it is impossible that the grave would hold Jesus. It's not merely because David had predicted that he wouldn't. Because who's David? David doesn't own the Jesus narrative. It's because the Spirit of God had predicted and had promised, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. It is not going to happen. And at that point, when the Spirit of God said that, it was not going to happen because God owns the Jesus narrative. And so verse 31, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Verse 32, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. That's the end of the passage we're looking at today. We've seen three things. God demonstrated that Jesus is Messiah through miracles. God delivered up Jesus to be crucified by sinners. Third, God raised Jesus from the dead as prophesied. But most importantly, we have seen this. God owns the Jesus narrative. The person, the work, the ministry, the miracles, the words. It doesn't mean what I think it means. It doesn't mean what this person or that person in the crowd listening to Peter might think it means. It doesn't mean what the religious leaders say it means. It means only and precisely what God says it means. And remember, he doesn't have the best take on the events. He is the author of them. They were his idea. Absolute authority over the meaning of the person and work of Jesus. And the fact, again, that humans had a hand in certain parts, but of course they did, Jews, Gentiles, the Romans, it doesn't diminish God's ownership one bit. God owns the Jesus narrative. It is his plan. It is his doing. It is his story. And remember what Jesus had said to Peter, flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, Peter. It was my Father in heaven that revealed it to 
Peter got his own understanding of the Jesus narrative from God the Father, and he's trying to help us do the same thing by mentioning God the Father 14 times in 11 verses. It is the Jesus narrative. Now, what, what difference does this make? Why does it matter that, it's, that God owns the Jesus narrative? It matters for this reason. Wrong narrative, wrong response. That's why it matters. Wrong narrative, wrong response. And Peter can stand up there and quote Joel all day long saying he's going to call all people, you know, call in the name of the Lord, all who call in the name of the Lord will be saved. But wrong narrative, you have the wrong response. And that's a problem today. Because again, in our culture, we value very, very highly the right of each and every person to own their own narrative, including their own spiritual narrative. But when it comes to the Jesus narrative, that's deadly. But on the other hand, right narrative, right response. And he's leading up to that. And I don't know who's preaching next week, but they're, they're going to get to show you some amazing stuff. Right narrative, right response. Why this matters. Wrong narrative, wrong response. That ends in death. Right narrative, right response, that ends in life. As David wrote in verse 28, Psalm 16, quoted, you have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. So I want to close with a couple of hard truths and an action item. Hard, first hard truth is this. There's a hard truth. The people God has called us to reach will not be permitted to enter the kingdom of heaven on their own terms. They will not be permitted to enter the kingdom of God based on their own narrative. Peter and John will say in just a few chapters, Acts chapter 4 in another sermon, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. This is it. And by the way, I'm not saying that. Peter and John said it. More importantly, Jesus said it. I am the way and the truth and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. And secondly, and this is the second hard truth, and it follows from the first. If we allow others their own Jesus narrative, they are doomed. For their sake and for the sake of the gospel, we must deny them their own Jesus narrative because God owns the Jesus narrative. I mentioned earlier the disciples on the road to Emmaus, they got a lot of it right, that prophet from God, very powerful, said amazing things, did amazing things. We'd hoped that he was going to be the one to redeem Israel. What did Jesus do? Because he was that, wasn't allowing them at first to recognize who he was. That came a little bit later. 
But when they said that, what did he say to them? This is Luke 24, 25 through 27. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. He straightened out their narrative. And theirs wasn't that far off to begin with. But he straightened them out. Like Jesus, we must reclaim and proclaim the true Jesus narrative. First, because it's God's. He owns it. This is what God did. This is what he tells us he is up to in the world. This is what he says we must all do in response. And second, because the eternal destinies of the people all around us depend on it. Father, I thank you for the clarity of your word, for Peter's boldness. I thank you that through your indwelling spirit, you have helped us love people, even people with whom we disagree, even people who think we're nuts. But Lord, I also confess that sometimes the love we feel for people makes us not want to confront them. And sometimes I confess that it's not because I love them that I don't want to speak the truth. It's because I don't want them to be mean to me. I want to be liked. Father, as I read Peter's sermon, I don't see a hint that he cares whether people like him. I see only evidence that he loves them. Lord, give us that boldness. In Christ's name we pray, amen.